Asia-Pacific Currents. News and labour issues from the Asia-Pacific region. We strongly condemn the, the police that arrest uh, the protesters. Saturday mornings at 9 o'clock. On Community Radio 3CR. Workers of the world should unite to fight this greedy capitalist. Brought to you by Australia Asia Worker Links. Good morning and welcome to Asia Pacific Currents this Saturday, the 30th of October. You're listening to 3CR, Asia Pacific Currents. I'm Giselle Hanna. And I'm Pierre Morrow. And it's a beautiful sunny day out there. So uh, welcome everyone. Hope you're having a, a, a good day. And for our international listeners, uh, we're actually all about to um, slowly get out of, um, of uh, restrictions. So, well, um, that's right, Pierre. I went to Kmart last night. Ooh. At something like nine o'clock or something, <laughs> it was um, packed. Look, I'm still a bit stressed from uh, from the experience. I have to be honest with you. <laughs> we had ten people over at home. Oh, did you? Yes, okay, yes. yeah. So Using every every them. opportunity. That's right. That's right. But uh, anyway, welcome um, everyone, and um, thanks to. Um, Solidarity Breakfast and Annie for another very interesting program and that uh, song, which is a fantastic song, I really like that, from Little Bi- Little Things, Big Things Grow by Kev Carmody and Paul Kelly. So, great song and I think uh, Kev Carmody is one of the best uh, singer-songwriters uh, in Australia. But that's, um, so we're listening to Asia Pacific Currents. Um, Giselle, brought you by Australia Asia Worklings and that's how can right. you get in touch with us? All the, yeah, if you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on the web or the w's.aawl.org.au or on Facebook and Twitter. So look us up on those social media platforms. Coming up in the second part of the show, we're actually going to speak with AAWL's chairperson, Colin Long, who is also the convener or coordinator or key campaigner for Victoria Trades Hall Council's climate justice campaign. And we're going to be talking about the uh, COP26, the 26 United Nations Council of Interested Parties or something like that. It's got a long, complicated name, um, but it's basically the Climate Change Summit, annual summit that is happening in Glasgow. And, of course, this year is... um, more important than usual because it's the it's five years since the Paris summit where it's a bit of a scorecard test on where things are at. That's right. So it'll be interesting to um, Colin has been following it closely. So we'll uh, certainly see how it goes and um, you know what the ramification for workers all around the world. But. Um, let's um, go to our news roundup for the week. Uh, Giselle, you've got the first one there. That's right. We're going to start in China uh, where there was a gas explosion leading to de- many, many deaths and injuries. Last week on the 21st of October, a big gas explosion on a commercial street in Shenyang City in Liang province in northeast China killed five people, injured approximately 50 and damaged around 100 buildings. Tens of thousands of people in the neighbourhood were affected by the force of the explosion. 
The cause of the explosion is yet to be identified, but it was related to ongoing work in replacing old gas pipes underneath the city. While safety checks and inspections were carried out in the days before the explosion, the reality is that there have been two other gas explosions in the same area over the last decade. In addition, in the same week, there were two other major separate chemical and gas explosions in China in the Inner Mongolia and in Dalian, Liang province, causing more deaths and injuries. Activists have identified that the current OHS model is too reactive, focusing on investigating incidents and not preventative enough in terms of implementing measures to stop explosions in the first place. And um, and by coincidence, on Thursday, I went to the statewide uh, Occupational Health and Safety Conference uh, done by oh, the Victorian Trade different, Council. Different Different uh, conversation for another day, uh, I think. Right, that's right. So um, now we go to um, um, Palestine, where last weekend the Israeli government declared six Palestinian civil society groups as terrorist organisations and therefore illegal. These organisations um, worked in the fields of prisoners' rights, human rights, agricultural workers' rights, women's and children's welfare, as well as a social research centre. This move, widely condemned by human rights organisations globally, is seen as another step by the Israeli government to suffocate any Palestinian resistance to occupation. Now, interestingly, that within days of this announcement to proscribe these six uh, Palestinian organisations, the Israeli government then announced that it will construct an additional 1,300 homes in the occupied West Bank, adding to the thousands already pledged in August. In Myanmar, the trial of deposed leader begins this week. The show trial of the 76-year-old deposed leader Aung San Suu Kyi began in a closed-door trial overseen by the military junta. Aung San Suu Kyi is facing 11 charges, including incitement, illegally owning walkie-talkies, breaking coronavirus rules and violating the Official Secrets Act. Actually, the one thing she should be charged with that she's not is winning the election, being popular. That's the charge. I mean, I, I do I, I do actually wonder. I mean, I, I can see why they're having a, a trial, but I wonder if anyone outside the Myanmar military actually believes the trial is real. Yes, yeah. I mean, the, the, I know I have to read the rest of the story, yes. but um, it, it was a failure to open that up that resulted in the rest of the leaders of ASEAN mm. banning them from the ASEAN summit. Um Aung San Suu Kyi faces decades of jail time if found guilty. This week, major union federations like Industrial and um, the European Trade Union move for formal requests for the European Union to put sanctions on the government of Myanmar for its treatment of workers since the military coup in February. Meanwhile, inside the country... The number of people who are being killed and injured in clashes between the military and resistance groups continues to increase while thousands more are displaced daily. And listeners will record a couple of weeks ago we spoke with Debbie Stoddard um, about uh, what was happening on the ground there. That's right. Now we move uh, nearby um, next door really to India 
um, we're well to the north uh, northwest of Indian Kashmir, where Kashmir remains one of the sectarian flashpoints in India, as the Indian military occupation of that region's region continues to increase communal tensions, um, and the military with the military continuing to arrest thousands of Kashmiris. In the last few months, there has also been an increase of local residents of the Hindu religion being killed by sectarian armed groups such as the Resistance Front. Now, in another development this week, the Indian military filed criminal cases under the region's stringent anti-terror laws against scores of Kashmiri students whose only crime was that they were seen celebrating uh, Pakistan's cricket victory over India in the latest T20 World Cup, which is obviously... Very uh, serious. Very serious. Um, (laughs) Go on. Yeah. In an unrelated uh, incident, the Hindu right-wing organisation, the BJP, forced a leading company to withdraw its festive season advertisement after it featured a couple of words in the advert from the Urdu language. Now, Urdu is spoken in northwest India and is the national language of Pakistan. While Urdu and Hindi, India's national language, are very similar and have the same linguistic origin, Far-right forces in India are now using this issue of, uh, of Urdu versus um, Hindi to foster division and sectarian hatred. Well, so the uh, communalism and, um, well, I mean, we, we have characterised the Modi government as fascist or fascistic, so I think we're uh, getting closer to that. I mean, what, what you didn't say in your story is Urdu is associated with Islam and, and well, obviously that's what is meant by it's the official language of Pakistan, but mm. it is this anti-Muslim, um, well, sectarianism, but communalism uh, that uh, is very worrying in that country. That's right. And unfortunately, a lot of these hatreds, whatever, you know, Urdu and, and Hindi, um, you know, as languages just separated a few hundred years ago and... and basically the same language. Um, Moving now to Lebanon. While the Lebanese economy remains in crisis, around 200 anti-government activists are took to the streets from mid-2019 to protest at corruption and inequality are continuing to be brought to face military courts for a variety of charges. Human rights activists see these prosecutions as blatantly political and an attempt to make sure that the anti-government movement doesn't revive to conform to conform the current political crisis in Lebanon. The sectarian killings on October 14, when mainly Shiite demonstrators were killed by unidentified gunmen, have revived fears that a new civil war may engulf Lebanon. While military conflict does not seem imminent, as the various sectarian elites are still able to gain financially from the current confessional and patronage political system, the extreme levels of poverty and hardship among the general population have now introduced new fault lines and pressure in Lebanon. And I just heard on the radio coming in about the um, Saudi Arabia are very un- unhappy about uh, one of the ministers talking about the Yemen war and they've uh, said they're going to take away lots of money. So that's another uh, interesting fault line. Um, we go to our last uh, item for the, um, the day we come back to Australia where the plight of over 40 refugees being held in a small hotel in the southern city of Melbourne is once again highlighting the brutality of Australia's refugee policies. These people have been kept in prison in a variety of small hotels since 2019 when they were evacuated from the offshore offshore concentration camps. At least half of these detainees have caught COVID-19. 
they are not receiving adequate care and given that there is no fresh air in that hotel, there are grave concerns for the rest of the refugees. These detainees already have high levels of physical and mental health issues as some of them have been in indefinite detention for nine years. As government policy is not to resettle these refugees in Australia, the likelihood is that these people may face more years of involuntary imprisonment. There is a solidarity rally outside this park, the Park Hotel in Ligon Street, uh, Carlton, today at 2pm. So we uh, encourage all, um, all uh, activists to, to go there. So but we've uh, come to the end of the news roundup. It's uh, just on 12 past 9 o'clock and uh, we'll go to a couple of community announcements and then we'll be back with our feature interview for the day. Across Australia and around the world, we've seen reactionary right-wing mobilisations around anti-vaccine, anti-lockdown and anti-public health demands. In response to this, the campaign against racism and fascism have launched the campaign Pro-Vax, Pro-Union, Anti-Fascist to combat the far right and to fight for public health, safety and social solidarity. Go to www.calf.melbourne to join the fight for the safety of workers in the community and against the far right. A 3CR supporter. It is 14 minutes past nine o'clock here on Community Radio 3CR. You're listening to Asia Pacific Currents. The 26th United Nations Climate Change Conference of the Parties begins in the Scottish city of Glasgow on Sunday. And, of course, uh, Scott Morrison is one of the people that will very reluctantly be there. But the conference represents some more important global issues to do with climate change. Joining us on the program this morning is Colin Long, the lead campaigner for Victoria Trades Hall Council on climate change and climate justice. Welcome, Colin. Thanks, Giselle. You're, you're welcome. Anytime. I also previously introduced you as the chairperson of AAWL. So just so you know, our listeners do know exactly who you are. Oh, that's it. There you go. It's good to have full disclosure, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Unlike some politician. Look, the reason this issue is so important is it impacts, well, obviously it impacts workers right across the world, but the workers that are the focus of our organisation, those in Asia. Uh, I'll get to um, a, a High Court challenge brought by Torres Strait Islanders against the federal government later in this conversation. But firstly, to begin with, this summit is going to include leaders from Asian island countries. Uh, I, I mean, what is there to say about the, the climate catastrophe in relation to the Asia-Pacific region? Well, some of the most vulnerable countries in the world, of course, are Pacific Island nations. Uh, and they've been begging the global community, but particularly Australia, as their nearest big neighbour, to take action immediately to reduce CO2 emissions because those countries are at incredible risk of uh, sea level rise. In fact, they're experiencing sea level rise at the moment. Um, and some of those nations on all projections at this stage will simply cease to exist if uh, action isn't taken at a much quicker and broader scale than is being taken anywhere in the world at the moment. Um, but of course, 
uh, Australia just seems completely uninterested in the welfare of our nearest neighbours. Uh, or the Australian government, that is, seems uninterested in the welfare, welfare of our nearest neighbours and is not doing anything at the scale or pace required to save those countries from disaster. Now, Colin, if I can just um, uh, ask you, I mean, obviously, and, and especially for some of our listeners who might be listening on a podcast and outside of, of Australia, I mean, it, it, it seems obvious to anyone um, inside Australia that the main stumbling block is the big coal and mining companies in, in Australia to any kind of um, meaningful climate action here in Australia. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. They're... Uh, they've effectively established the Liberal and National parties as wholly owned subsidiaries of the mining and gas industry. Um, and those companies appear determined to continue uh, to produce climate-destroying uh, coal, gas, oil for as long as they can possibly get away with it. Prime Minister Morrison's uh, statement during the week that Australia would adopt a net zero emissions target by 2050, he was very clear in saying that that didn't mean that would be any closure of coal or gas production in Australia. So um, their, the government's great hope is that some amazing technology like carbon capture and storage will come about to enable the... the those industries to continue to produce emissions, which will, by some magic process, which hasn't worked anywhere really in the world at this stage, will be able to capture those emissions. So at the moment, uh, the, the coal and gas industry, which, as we know, it, uh, provides huge amounts of donations to both major political parties, we have a, a number of... We, we sort of had a, have a... Uh, revolving door between the political parties and the companies with um, major figures going from government into into the mining companies after they finish their political careers and uh, some going the other way as well. Um, so the, the ex extent of influence of the fossil fuel industry in Australia is almost unprecedented. Yeah, that, that's in Australia and that, that accounts for the behaviour of Scott Morrison, his earlier reluctance to go to Glasgow, uh, his ultimate um, acquiescence and no doubt he'll get a bit of an ass kicking while he's there. But this is very much at the level of individual and um, a significant contributor, no doubt, as Australia is to um, global emissions, we're not solely responsible for that. And actually, you mentioned these um, massive, massive companies who are ultimately responsible. So, you know, we've got this United Nations Summit, which is made up of world leaders. But what of the CEOs of ExxonMobil and BHP and Shell and Rio Tinto and, and uh, given our uh, our analysis of how capitalism operates and that these leaders are really just the agents of these um, massive corporations, what is the effect of this summit? How could it possibly be effective anyway, I guess is my question. Oh, big one, big one for you. <laughs> Look, the, the simplest 
solution. I don't think you're quite asking me for solutions at this stage, but um, the simplest solution for this problem of the role of the big fossil fuel companies, it would be... Now, I know this is a long way off, but you never know. But we, and we may, need to make these demands. It, it would be expropriation of these big companies. Simply take them off their private owners' hands and then begin the process of closing their operations down or transforming their operations into climate-friendly things like, uh, you know, there will, some mining will need to continue, of course, to produce the minerals required for uh, renewable energy and all that sort of thing. So it, it, that is the only solution, I think, that we will have to come to at some stage is expropriation because the, these companies show that they don't care. They are prepared to continue to... Uh, destroy the planet if they can get away with it. So the point of that, if they can get away with it, is that I suppose is the point of the COP, is so that governments will agree in some form to stop them getting away with it. Now, at the moment, uh, and for the last 30-odd years, that has been more about governments creating... The, and supported by the UN bodies governments creating the conditions in which uh, non-fossil fuel capitalists or fossil fuel capitalists who want to change a bit can create... So it's creating the conditions in which they can invest to make profit out of uh, trans uh, changing to renewables. Now, that's not working, clearly, because we're at... The level of CO2 emissions is clearly... is higher than it ever has been. So we need a transformation away from this idea that a market-based approach to climate change is going to deliver what we need. We know it's not. What is needed is massive government um, intervention, planning, public ownership of investment in renewables, for instance. And it's not just the role of governments to de-risk investments for the private sector and allow the private sector to make money and hope that they can outcompete fossil fuel capitalists because... It's just not working. So that, those messages have to be brought to the COP. Um, I, I, I share your uh, doubts that the COP will uh, manage to bring those sorts of messages and, and get governments to adopt them. But at this stage, it is the only forum in which all governments of the world still attend uh, and make... And, dedicate attention to this issue, so it is still a very important event. But it may be as, just as important as all of the protests and pressure and activities that take place on the sidelines. Well, that's right. So the COP is only one part of an international landscape of things that are happening in relation to climate change. And you yourself are involved in other forums, including forums of leaders of unions right across the world. One of the things that you mentioned as a demand, which is very big as well, is the demand of expropriation. And I wonder, does that come up in the um, international union forums that you're engaged with? Uh, no, that demand doesn't come up enormously. The, the one of the forums that I'm involved with is Trade Unions for Energy Democracy, which is quite a substantial international forum of unions from uh, all over the world, all continents, essentially. Um, and its main emphasis is on the public 
interest in the energy transformation, in energy democracy, um, and in uh, social control and ownership of renewables, which is largely public ownership, but may not necessarily. There can be some cooperative ownership of renewable energy, and there is quite a bit of that uh, in various places in the world, including in the United States, where big electricity cooperatives already operating in the United States and have for a long time. So it, it, that's the main that's the main alternative discourse, I suppose, to the market-driven one is one where it's about public ownership and, and investment, but that expropriation demand hasn't really come up. But we're going to have to start talking about this seriously because it's quite clear the fossil fuel companies won't stop unless they are forced to stop. Um, Colin, I think that's a, a very interesting um, question there because I, I, I sort of see it is that there is another possibility that might eventuate which will actually be sort of good in a, um, for the planet but it might be really bad for, for workers at the same time so that the companies may not be expropriated but the government may agree with the companies. Um, uh, understanding and agreement to actually buy out these companies. So in other words, these companies are mothball, but the governments will actually spend billions of dollars to give money to these capitalists, which of course we as workers will have to um, pay, and you know, they will try and make us pay for it. So do you think that over the next decade or so we might see a move towards, um, you know, capitalists saying, yeah, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll give up, but you've got to give me like $5, $10 billion or $100 billion for it. There is, a, there is a risk of that. But at the same time, with some, with some companies, especially in thermal coal production, their value has dropped enormously in recent years. And some American, big American coal companies have effect, effectively declared bank, bankruptcy and some of them on multiple occasions. So a lot of them are not actually worth very much. So if it took a small amount of money to, to buy them out and get rid of them, I, in some ways, the des we're such a, in such mm -hmm. a desperate situation, I'm not fast, especially if the if, if government control of those companies was led to government's planning for the workforces in a, in a true just transition sense. But, yeah, obviously we would... We don't want to simply put a whole lot of public money into buying out uh, people who are trying to destroy the earth. But there is, a, there is a serious decline in the value of some of these companies, and even some big companies like Rio Tinto and BHP are rapidly trying to offload their thermal coal exposure because uh, they can see the writing on the wall about that stuff. But if there are companies buying into those assets at this stage of history, I don't see why anyone should compensate them if they need to be closed. Well, that, that would be the logical uh, step, wouldn't it? Um, Colin, we've got about one minute to, to go. So just um, let's put your crystal ball, turn it on. So in, in one minute, how do you think the, summit, the Glasgow summit will go and what will come out? I think there was a lot of hope that China would come up with bigger commitments for COP26. That seems unlikely, and China is by far the biggest emitter 
in the world. So that's that's a problem. I think there will be... I don't think there will be any change to the trajectory that the nationally determined contributions, which is what the uh, governments are supposed... the promises they make at the COP, it looks like the trajectory they put us on is for 2.7 degrees of warming, which is catastrophic. It looks like that is the likely outcome of COP26. We won't get much better than that. But we hope that there will be continued commitment to do more. And I suppose I hope that civil society, unions and non-government organisations, climate organisations and so on, uh, decide that if governments aren't going to do the right thing, we need to change and get rid of those governments and take control of the trajectory ourselves. So I'm hoping the main thing will come is a re renewed commitment from the climate movement to overthrow the system as it currently exists. Well, that's a great uh, way to finish up, uh, Colin, and we'll hopefully that will get there. So um, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Colin Long, the lead organiser at Victoria Trades Hall Council for their uh, climate change and climate justice uh, campaign work. That does bring us to the end of Asia Pacific Currents. It's 9.30 on the dot. Thanks for tuning in. We will be back next Saturday with more news and current affairs from the Asia Pacific region. I'm Giselle Hanna. And I'm Pierre Morrow. And stay tuned to 3CR Radio. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.